as well. God's word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Be seated. I know that um, I know that we just prayed, um, but let's continue in that in that same spirit and that same attitude, and let's let's pray before we hear from God's word this morning. Please pray with me, Father in heaven. Oh Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open for you to move in our midst this morning. Oh Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that you have sent your son so that access to you is opened by faith. And oh Lord, I pray that this morning you would do a work in our lives. I ask that as I speak that you would guide my words. And as each one of us listens, Oh, Lord, give us soft hearts and give us lives that are eager and ready to be obedient to you, that we might worship you with our lips and our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I I wonder how many things we do in life without really giving thought to their significance. I think it happens a lot. And I do think it's normal. There are many things we do simply because we do them. We always do them. And we don't really think about their significance. We just, we just do them. For example, one thing that we often do is shake hands. We shake hands when we say hello. We shake hands when we say goodbye. We shake hands at an interview. We shake hands when we strike a deal. We often shake hands. And we don't often really think about it. But historians agree that shaking hands is actually an ancient practice of ensuring that the other person is not carrying a weapon. That's how it started. It's a way of saying, are you packing? It goes all the way back to ancient Greeks and then developed throughout the centuries. It first began as a simple hand clasp, but then later turned into a handshake to kind of jiggle loose anything that someone might be carrying up their sleeve. But we don't think about its significance. We shake hands because we shake hands. It's almost second nature. It's what we always do and it has become customary. 
Similarly, there's the high five. Did you know that the high five did not come onto the scene until recently? That there's a, there's a good amount of people in this room right now that the, the high five didn't even exist when they were young? I did not realize that. I figured it was just always around forever that, that somebody invented the wheel and he got a high five. But the first ever documented high five actually came about in the realm of baseball less than 40 years ago. Before then, someone would hit a home run, cross the home plate, and be met by a series of hearty, business-like handshakes. But then on October 2nd, 1977, one player on the Dodgers hit a home run. And he, as he was coming to home plate, he saw another player waiting there with his hand raised. So he slapped it. And history was changed forever. The player later reported that it just seemed like the thing to do. Soon after, the Dodgers leaped on that opportunity and trademarked the high five. And get this, called it the official salute of their team. So Cubs fans, White Sox fans, Yankee fans, and Cardinal fans... I want you to know that whenever you give someone a high five, you are inherently saying, Go Dodgers. It's true. But we don't think about its significance. We give high fives because we give high fives. It's what we always do, it's customary. And I'm not saying that these things are wrong. All I want us to see is how easy it is for us to do things simply because that's what we always do. It happens all the time and most of the time it's fine. But where we need to be aware of how, is how easily this can happen to Christmas as well. We must be warned that we can get to the other side of Christmas. We can do Christmas without ever giving thought to its significance it happens all the time. It's altogether possible to go through the Christmas season and do these things simply because this is what we always do and this is customary and it comes around every year. We do it because we do it. No real thought about it. And all the while we miss out on its deep, deep significance. But that's not the way it has to be. We can go out of our way to make sure of it. And so for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, our goal is to deliberately dwell on the depths of significance of Christmas. To pause, to take time and see all that it means. That's what our Christmas series is about. We want each of us to catch a glimpse of the sheer significance of Christmas We want each of us to see that it was not just an isolated day when baby Jesus was born and in retrospect he fulfilled a few prophecies. But no, this is what all of Scripture has been pointing to. The entire trajectory of the Bible leads up to this point. Everything is looking forward to, waiting for, building up to the coming of Christ. This is what Jesus showed two of his disciples on the famous road to Emmaus. 
It's recorded in Luke 24, 27. And you'll find it printed in your bulletin. Because I really want us to see this verse. It kind of sets the tone for the entire Christmas series. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice that it doesn't say a few of the scriptures or some of the scriptures. Jesus explained to them what all the scriptures said of him. It's not that every last minute detail somehow relates to Christ, but that all of Scripture is ultimately pointing to Him. The Bible has many human authors, but behind it stands one divine author writing one story in history that culminates with the coming of Christ. That is the significance of Christmas. And our goal is to catch a glimpse of that this Christmas season. So in our series, we're going to be looking at Old Testament passages and how they point to the coming of Christ. And we're going to be doing the same for our kids with the Advent readings so that each one of us can see how significant was that night in Bethlehem. The long-awaited Messiah, the one everything in Scripture has been anticipating, has come. And I pray that our hearts would be filled afresh with the thrill of the good news of great joy that the angels announced. And that Christmas would not just be customary to us. So this morning we will start by rewinding back. All the way back to Genesis. All the way back to the Garden of Eden to see how everything, even the beginning, points us to the coming of Christ. As early as Genesis 3, we are waiting for Christmas. So please turn with me to our passage in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. Once again, that's Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. And we need to know a little bit of the background here. Genesis 1, the first chapter of Genesis, tells us how God created the heavens and the earth. And over and over we hear the refrain that God said it was good and everything is in its perfect environment and everything was in perfect conformity to God's will. And then we see what was clearly the crowning point of all creation, man and woman, of all creation. They alone are made in the image of God. They are His representatives on earth, ruling under Him and fully enjoying everything He has created. Then God looked at all that he had made and declared that it was not just good. It was very good. By the end of chapter 2, we see the man and the woman living in the Garden of Eden, sharing a perfect bond as one. And all their needs are provided for. And something that we can't miss is that the description of the Garden of Eden whispers its purpose. It was set up as the meeting place between God and humanity. God made a place where He would dwell in perfect fellowship with the man and the woman. That's what it was all about. And that's the picture we're left with. Perfect harmony with one another and with God. And that's where our passage begins. The account unfolds in three stages. The gravity of the sin, 
the tragedy of the results and the enormity of God's grace. The first stage starts in verse 1. Please follow along as I read aloud. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Suddenly another presence is felt in the garden. A serpent slithers into the picture. But this was not an ordinary serpent. Something else was at work here. An evil power was looming behind it all. But at first we're not sure of his motives. He doesn't show his true colors right off the bat. Ever so subtly he asks, Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Wait, any tree? Any tree? That's not what God had said. God had said, you may surely or freely eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent is painting a different picture of God. He's subtly suggesting that God is holding out on him, on them, that all he says is no. He's insinuating that God is depriving them. And the woman corrects him. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We can't completely dissect this statement here for the sake of time. There's a lot here. But notice in general that some of what God originally said gets subtracted. And some things are added. We don't know if this is Adam's doing and passing on God's words or hers. Either way, the sense of uncertainty is somewhat unsettling. They're not clear on God's word. As soon as the woman utters the word die, the serpent replies replies with a flat out lie. You shall not surely die. It was a straight denial of God's word. And notice that he didn't begin with this. He didn't begin so bold. He didn't show up and start with a suggestion so obviously wrong. He started out subtly. The ground he began with was small, simply a suggestion to entertain, and then it became bigger and bigger. It's like he starts out with a small crack in the door and then opens it up as he is allowed. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that this is often the case in our lives as well. 
When temptation comes our way, it often doesn't begin with something so clearly out of the question. Something that we would obviously say no to. We may not be presented with a big step, but often a small step in the wrong direction. And then another, and then another. I am convinced that most Christians, when they have fallen, didn't wake up one day planning on it. It was a, it was a series of decisions that led up to that. A series of decisions made over time. We, meet, we need to be aware of how quickly small decisions of compromise become big ones. In the garden, the serpent is now more bold than ever. With his final words, he holds nothing back. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is accusing God. In essence, he's saying, you know, you could be better off. But God does not want that for you. He's not looking out for your best interests. He's holding you back from all that you could attain. You could be equal with God. He is keeping you from something good. Looking back on the serpent's words in these verses, there are really two main things he is denying about God. And I think we need to know this because Scripture later tells us that this serpent is the very embodiment of Satan himself. And Satan is still the enemy of God's people. He is still telling the exact same lies to us. So number one, he denies God's goodness. Over and over, Satan is making it seem like God is somehow cheating them, holding out on them, like there's so much good outside of God's will that he doesn't want them to have. He just wants to confine them. He cares very little for them. When this same lie lodges in our hearts, we open ourselves to sin. We tell ourselves that God is holding out on us, So we would be happier, better, more well-off, more fulfilled, more complete if we just step outside of His will. We tell ourselves that God does not draw a line in the sand to love us, but to limit us. We tell ourselves that we have to take matters into our own hands because He does not or will not provide there's so much we could say here. But I just want, just want to say one thing. One way we fight against this lie. And it seems so simple, but it's so necessary. One way we fight against this lie is by cultivating a life of thankfulness. Deliberate, tenacious thankfulness. You see, when we deliberately and regularly thank God, our eyes are brought back to the reality of how good He truly is to us. And this lie gets smaller and smaller. The serpent denies God's goodness. The second thing he denies is God's word. God had said clearly that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. 
In other words, they would be cut off from the source of life. But Satan emphatically says, there will be no consequences if you eat of the tree. In fact, you will be better off if you do. God warned them, but Satan says, don't listen to that. Nothing's going to happen. He says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When you and I believe this fundamental lie, we don't think that God means when He says that sin is destructive, that sin has consequences, but we got to see that He says these things because He loves us. We fight against this lie of Satan by not only knowing God's Word, but by believing God's Word. Believing that He does what He says He will do, always. Trusting that what He says is true and for our good. And these lies were gaining ground in the garden. In verse 6, our attention turns to the woman and the man beside her. The act of sin appeals to the woman at every level. You can see her being drawn in. It promises so much. It looks so good from the outside. Tragically, we watch as she takes and eats the fruit and gives it to her husband as he eats along with her. Notice how this part is packed with action words. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. It gives you a sense of spiraling out of control, of unraveling rapidly, and you want to shout, No! But it's too late. The tragic deed has been done. But part of you may ask, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about eating the fruit anyway? What's so wrong with the fruit? First of all, it probably wasn't an apple. If you ask me, it was probably a coconut, because that is clearly the most cursed of all fruits. But to be honest, I actually think it is to our disfavor that throughout history we have focused so much on the fruit itself, as if that was the evil thing. But the emphasis of this passage is on the act itself. It was the action that was sinful. How so? What does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mean? I've seen it interpretively translated as the tree of decision. And I think that accurately gets at the point. This was about a decision. It was a decision about who gets to call the shots. Eating of the tree was a declaration to God. You are not the authority over my life. I am not dependent on you to decide what is good or not. We want to be king and queen of this place. That's why the sin is so serious. It's not about the fruit, it's about an uprising, an attempt to dethrone God. And here is where we must realize that is ultimately what all sin is. There is a throne in each one of our hearts. And it only seats one. 
Our sin says to God, the rightful ruler, you are not on that throne. I am. And if that sounds liberating to you, we only need to look to what happens next in the garden. The first stage of our passage was the gravity of sin. The second stage is found in verses 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This stage describes the tragedy of the results. And it really is sad. The serpent had told them a half-truth. That's usually what Satan does. Yes, their eyes were opened as he promised, but not the way he had promised. They now knew they were naked. Being naked is associated with being exposed. And that's how they felt. In other words, they realized that they were no longer innocent. Can you imagine that overwhelming sense of shame coming over them for the very first time? They had never felt shame before. And it's not like they were embarrassed. It's deeper. It's that they felt guilty and completely out in the open, like something was shining a spotlight on them. Their hearts race and they feel panic. Something, again, that they had never felt before. And there's this sudden impulse to hide. So we watch as they scramble, frantically trying to put together fig leaves to cover themselves, trying to cover their guilt themselves. And while this was primarily in relation to God, it also puts up a barrier in their own relationship. Already there's a sad sense of separation in the garden. Just then, their eyes widen as they hear what was probably a familiar sound. It used to fill them with joy. I imagine that it used to be that they would be almost like children running to the door at this sound. It was the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems like a regular occurrence. The cool of the day means the time when the sun was going down and the evening breeze was coming in. So we get this this little picture of life in the garden up to this point. Adam and Eve walking with the Lord in the early evening with the sun lowering in the sky. 
It's an incredibly moving picture of intimate friendship. I think of walking around with Lisa or with friends on like a perfect summer evening after dinner with, with, with the breeze coming in just right. Just imagine that, that that was what they enjoyed with the Lord. That was their life. But this time, it's different. This time, we see Adam and Eve running away, hiding from the presence of the Lord. But God, like a shepherd, gathering lost sheep, seeks them. He knows exactly where they are. But as an invitation to come forward, he calls out, Where are you? The man answers, I heard you in the garden, and because I was naked, I was afraid, so I hid. The joy of His presence has been replaced by fear. God asks, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree, the one I told you not to? God knew exactly what they did. But again, it's an invitation to come clean, to confess. But how does the man respond? Verse 12, The woman whom you gave me. I imagine him pointing his finger. In the original language, the word she is emphasized. She gave me the fruit. And I ate. He blames the woman. And it's actually really sad. We watch as their relationship splinters all the more. And there's one three-letter word in his response that we can't miss. Y-O-U Whom you gave to be with me. Ultimately, the man is pointing his finger at God. In essence, he's saying, If you had not put me in these circumstances, this would have never happened in the first place. Really, this is all your doing. He is blaming God. A pattern that would be repeated down through the ages. So we see the man is at odds with the woman and the man is at odds with God. And then the Lord turns to the woman. He invites her to respond. What is this you have done? We hear her reply. The serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, the devil made me do it. Listen, The devil may tempt us, but our sin is our responsibility. We look back at both of their responses and all we see is biting and and blame shifting. They're scrambling. First they tried to cover their guilt with leaves and now they're trying to cover it with excuses, explanations. It's the woman. It's God. It's the devil. It's everything but me. And before we shake our heads, we have to ask, how often do I not own up to my sin before God? Am I sitting here knowing that I've just been explaining it away? How often do I try to avoid responsibility? We would do well to learn from David 
who when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, simply said this, I have sinned. We're left with a picture of everything in the garden pulling apart as a result of sin. It's like hitting a mirror and every piece of it is fractured from top to bottom. The perfect, harmonious relationships have been drastically ruptured. On a horizontal level, the man and the woman are alienated from one another. And even more importantly, on a vertical level, they are alienated from God. The unhindered fellowship they shared with God will become more and more a distant memory. God does not dwell with sin. He cannot dwell with sin. So they had to be banished from the garden. They were cut off from His presence. Cut off from the source of life. So far in our passage, we have seen the gravity of sin and the tragedy of the results. And at this point, you might be thinking, might, might be thinking, Merry Christmas. But God is not done yet. The third stage is found in verses 14 through 15. We read. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This final stage describes the enormity of God's grace. And this is something we have already seen hinted at the verses just prior. We have to remember that God is the offended party here. He had created this perfect place to dwell with humans where everything was good, everything was provided for, and they are the ones that tried to dethrone Him, to overthrow Him. They rebelled against Him and ran away from His presence, forsaking Him. Then notice the first word in verse 9. I want you to see it. But, but the Lord God called to the man. God was the offended one. He was the one sinned against. But he is the one who immediately pursues them. But he's not done. All of this culminates with the announcement of a promise in the final verse of the passage. Verse 15. God says to Satan, From the woman will come an offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the difference between a strike to the heel and a strike to the head. It's not an equal outcome. In essence, God is declaring to Satan, Yes, You will wound this offspring, but even as you do, he will strike you with the fatal blow. Satan had led the man and woman into the curse of sin and death, and they made the decision to follow. But before they even left the garden, before they even stepped foot outside of Eden, God made a promise. Be assured, 
One is coming who will reverse all of this. One is coming who will reverse the curse of sin and death. This is the first rudimentary announcement of God's plan to bring those trapped in sin and death back to Himself. And all of the rest of Scripture is about how this plays out. Who is this promised offspring? His name is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, an earthly descendant of Abraham, the offspring of Terah, the offspring of Noah, the offspring of Seth, the offspring of Adam and Eve. He is the promised one who came to reverse the curse of sin and death and as we, as we learn later in Genesis, to bless the nations as joy to the world puts it, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That is the good news of great joy at Christmas. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. But how did He do it? How did He reverse the curse? He reversed it by enduring it in our place. Although He was the only one since the garden to be innocent on the cross, He endured shame to take our shame away. He endured separation from God to reconnect us to God. And He endured death to bring us life, eternal life. Yes, He was wounded by the evil one. The promise foretold that He would suffer. But on the third day, He struck the final blow. He rose victorious to defeat the power of sin and death forever. And all who receive Him by faith as Lord and Savior are given victory over the curse. We are no longer alienated from God. We are no longer alienated from one another. And all this is but a whisper of what is to come. One day, we will be brought back to God in a new and better garden that He has prepared for us in heaven where we will enjoy unhindered, unending, unimaginable fellowship with Him. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. That's what we wait for. He's going to bring us back to a better garden. And all the symptoms of the curse we experience outside of Eden will not have the final word. The garden that awaits us in heaven is described as a city garden. We're Chicagoans. We like cities. But I want to point out a few key ways it will be different than our city. In that city, there will be no hospitals because there will be no sickness. In that city, there will be no cemeteries because there will be no death. And there will be no Kleenex because He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no sun because He Himself will shine upon us. 
this Christmas season, I want to encourage you to celebrate, to make the most of the reverse of the curse that Jesus has won for you. I want to encourage you to live out the victory he has given you in two simple ways. Number one, to to deliberately make time to enjoy your relationship with God. To resolve to not let a day go by where you don't appreciate the fact that you can commune with Him. And part of the way I want to do this is tomorrow we will send out an email and post on our Facebook group a link to daily readings for Advent. And I want to encourage you to unplug from the busyness of the season and read through these each day leading up to Christmas. Deliberately make time to enjoy your relationship with God. And number two, to deliberately make peace in your relationship with others. In the garden, relationships fell apart. In Jesus, they are brought back together. Is there an unreconciled relationship in your life that God is calling you to take care of? Don't delay You may not feel you have the power to do it, but in Jesus there is victory over bitterness, strife, and unforgiveness. As you depend on Him, He will give you the power to deliberately make peace in your relationships with others. The one who was foretold from the beginning, Jesus, the promised curse reverser, blessing bringer, has come. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you 